0: Acts chapter 6 this morning. If you have your copy of scripture, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 6. If you know me, you know that I hate jumping into the middle of a book, so I'm going to try to provide some context for us this morning as we go along. Um, Acts 6, verses 1 through 7, is commonly believed to be the origination of the office of deacons in the early church. There's a question whether the seven men that are appointed to wait the tables and serve the widows in the church and solve the disputation among them, are actually deacons, or if this is just sowing the seeds of what would become the diaconate, As church history has progressed, it has become very common to connect what is written here with what we read in 1 Timothy chapter 3 about the qualifications for the office of deacon. Let me say this this morning, there are only two offices in the New Covenant Church, Elders and deacons, you see this at the very beginning of Paul's letter to the Philippians, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, where Paul addresses the elders and the deacons. Sometimes you will hear elders called things like shepherds, overseers, that's where we get our word, episcopos, bishops. Uh, it is one office with two subsets. And then the office of deacon. I think I mentioned this when we, when we were doing the diaconal, nominations, and um, it, it took me a long time to realize this. There are two offices because Christ is the Savior of the souls and the body of his people, the spirits and the bodies of his people. He's the Savior of the whole of us. You see that in the ways in which Jesus teaches spiritual truths and does that great work of suffering on the cross for the redemption of his people, you also see it in, in the little things that he does, like, like making a fire and feeding his disciples there on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, or after raising the little girl uh, from the dead, saying, give her something to eat. And as he alone is the savior of soul and body, he has distributed out of his fullness these two offices— to care for the spiritual and the physical, material mercy needs of his people. And so as we come to this passage this morning with those things in mind, I want us to look together at Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Very early on in the life of the fledgling New Covenant, church and the spread of the gospel now going out from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. And now Luke, the beloved physician, says, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, the Greeks, against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right Procurus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenaeus and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I don't know how often you think about this, but as a pastor, I think about this almost on a weekly basis, and that is just how frail the Christian church is, just how frail the Christian church is. Tim Keller used to say, and I think he's right, he used to say, I feel like I'm just one sermon away from pulling the whole thing down. The Christian church is very frail, and anybody who's been in Christian churches for any length of time has seen the fragility of the church, how easily the church is beset by conflict and disputes and murmuring and grumbling and infighting. And generally, if not almost all the time, that grumbling and those 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 murmurings are over things that are absolutely on not just a prima facie consideration, but in and of themselves are absolutely very small and insignificant things. Um, One of the most heated, I debated whether to tell you this, but I'm going to, so here we go. Uh, One of the most heated conflicts I had personally with a member in a church I pastored was over me wanting us to start a ministry to orphans and this individual getting angry because I didn't talk to them, I talked to their spouse about it. I'm not making this up. Yelled at me in front of 50 people in a church. And I just wanted us to have a ministry to some orphans. Now, I tell you that because the conflict and the disputation that's happening here at the very beginning of the fledgling New Covenant church and the very first conflict that we read about in the life of the church is over something very small and insignificant. And yet the church is threatened. The, 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 the health and the well-being, the prosperity and the continuation of the church is threatened over something so insignificant and the murmuring of individuals who ought not to be murmuring over what they were fighting over. Now, one of the things that we see here at the very outset before we look at this in detail is the way in which Luke introduces this. Notice verse 1. Now, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number... Um, If you went through all the chapters in the early sections of the book of Acts, you would notice the great care that is given to the ever-increasing number of believers. That's important because you will sometimes hear well-meaning believers, usually in really, really small confessionally reformed churches, say things like, you know, smaller churches are better because they're more faithful and numbers don't matter, and we shouldn't worry about numbers. Well, the apostles cared about numbers. They cared about it so much that they told us that this group that began back in chapter 1 with just uh, 120 disciples, after Peter's preaching at Pentecost, grew by 3,000, and then there were another 5,000 in chapter 4, and the number of believers and the church was, was growing and increasing constantly, just as God had promised, as the gospel went to the nations, the church was growing. People were converted. It was, it was tangible and evident that God was at work. And it's interesting that as we consider this section this morning, that it's with that increase of number that new trials and challenges come. I have a friend that often says to me, "You know, everybody wants the church to grow until it starts growing. Because then it's problems, and more problems. More people, more problems. I'm people, you're people. I'm not saying that in a condescending way, but we see here that this conflict arises. Now, I want us to consider three very brief and basic things this morning as we look at Acts 6, 1 through 7. I want us to consider the conflict itself, and then I want us to consider the corrective, and then the conclusion, or the outcome. The outcome: the conflict, the corrective, and the conclusion. Now, if you were to trace the conflict that the apostles and that the early church had um, through the book of Acts from chapter one on, you would very quickly realize that Satan has three basic strategies that he uses over and over and over again. Um, you know the apostle Paul will say in second corinthians eleven three that we are not ignorant of Satan's devices. We are not ignorant of his devices. And he has three very basic strategies. It is opposition from without. We see that early on. We see that in chapter 3. We see it more in chapter 4. And then you have conflict within. We see that, don't we, in the hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5. And then you have Divisions to two sides, which we have here. You have opposition without, you have hypocrisy within, and you have division into two sides. Um, if Satan couldn't bring this fledgling church down through persecution, and if he couldn't with the hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira, then he would try to do it in what seems to be the most menial and insignificant controversy in the church, and yet of such great matter, of such great matter that the entire church is affected by it. Now, I've noted already this was the first conflict that we hear about in the church. Up until this point, we're told that the disciples were of one heart, and one mind that they had all things in common they were together daily breaking bread in their houses praising God sitting under the apostolic teaching the number of the church was growing things were going wonderfully God was giving power to his ministers to proclaim the gospel in the midst of the persecution he was using them to purify the church through the exercise of discipline in, in, in putting Ananias and Sapphira out of the church and now and now that that unity of heart and mind is being disrupted. And the conflict was between poor widows in the church. Now, um, this passage has a whole lot more descriptive than prescriptive, and so it's helpful for us to read this through the rest of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul will talk about the obligation of the church to care for widows. And he'll actually say that a widow under the age of 60 is not to be taken into the number and given collections because presumably she had family that was to take care of her. Paul would actually say that if a man doesn't provide for his household, for those of his house, including aging parents, a widowed mother, that he's worse than an unbeliever. And yet here we see that even in these early days, there was a group of widows in the church who didn't have family to care for them. And at some point, the church had decided it is right and good for us to share what God has given us with these widows as they have need, and that there was some sort of continual care and mercy exercised toward them. Notice that this complaint and this conflict between these Greek-speaking um, Jewish widows and these Hebrew-speaking Jewish widows, notice, was over some feeling as though they had n- been neglected in, notice this, the daily distribution. Now, we don't know if money was given to them. We don't know if bread was given to them. We don't know who was distributing this. It could have been the apostles. There could have been others distributing. And there, there are speculations that there were men functioning like deacons and that they were Jewish themselves, and that there is, in all likelihood, the probability that they may have been showing partiality to the Jewish-speaking, the Hebrew-speaking Jewish widows. And they were distributing to them first, and they were putting down or putting to the side the Greek-speaking Jewish widows, um, whatever, whatever the case And and we don't know, it might have been that the Greek-speaking Jewish widows were just making this up in their mind and felt like they were being discriminated against when they weren't. Whatever the case, this was the very inception of that ethnic division that existed in the world in that day creeping into the church. Very interesting. The first division between Jews and Gentiles in the church of which the New Testament is going to be full of instruction about because it's constantly resurfacing, constantly causing division, happens here among these two different groups of Jewish widows. When I said earlier, the better part of controversies in the church that destroy churches are just ridiculously insignificant, this is a prime example of this. This never should have gotten to the place it got to and yet it spread to such an extent that the entire church was brought into it, and the apostles were brought into it, and it had it had infiltrated the church in such a way that the dissension became a germ in the church that infected everything. Um, now, you'll notice that in this conflict, um, the 12 were approached at some point, and it, it does make sense that the church would have looked to the apostles to solve this difficult problem, and so they come to that apostolic band, they bring the conflict to them, and, and notice verse 2, the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, um, the better part of this section is going to be the corrective that we're looking at, the corrective to this conflict. Notice that, that um, the, the church is looking for the apostles to do something about this. And one of the very interesting things about this passage is the apostolic solution is to tell the church, you need to take care of it yourselves. The apostles don't say, you know what, maybe we should preach less. Maybe we're preaching too much. Maybe we should start waiting tables. They don't even say, we have the solution. Let us come back to you. We're going to figure it out and tell you what's going to be done. They say, it is not right for us to leave the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men. Pick out from among you seven men. Now, what the apostles are essentially saying is, and this may sound trite, but they're essentially saying, you form a committee. And, and in the ancient world, generally the number seven was that number of, of committee members. When a committee in, in a certain council in the Sanhedrin or these other religious groups were formed, it was the number of committee members. And the apostles are essentially saying to the church, listen, you all have to find this solution, and you will find it by choosing for yourself seven men with this character to take care of these things. Now, um, it is remarkable that the apostles don't leave the ministry of the word. Um, This doesn't mean that ministers of the gospel are never to do anything merciful in caring for others. Um, I've told you many times how remarkable it is when the Apostle Paul is a prisoner on that ship and they shipwreck and they land on Malta and um, Luke notes at the end of this book, in this book, that the Apostle Paul was out picking up sticks to make a fire for his captors. That's the sort of merciful heart. Nothing was beneath the Apostle Paul. He would, he, would, he would put himself so low like the Savior in taking up the basin and the towel to wash the feet of the disciples, but here as the entire church, as the superstructure of the new covenant church is under attack and the very foundations of the church are essentially in jeopardy, the apostles don't take it on themselves to do all the mercy ministry. In fact, they say, listen, it is the work of the entire church to be caring for the needs of of the people of the church, and to that end, you need representative leaders who are going to lead you into these acts of mercy and service and encourage you to be coming alongside them in it. Uh, We are not told in this passage that the deacons do all the mercy ministry and that the members of the church don't have to do any mercy ministry. We are told that these men were to be appointed appointed to oversee this duty. Now, um, the apostles delegate presumably here in this fledgling New Covenant church to the, the, the work of forming a diaconate or something akin to a diaconate to care for the needs of the widows in the church so that they could fully minister the word of God because listen very carefully because you will miss this if you don't. They appoint those men to this work and say, we will not give up ministering the word of God because they understood that there were gifts among the people of God that needed to be encouraged and identified by the preaching of the word of God so that the people of God would be equipped to build each other up in love. And they understood that there were seven men among them. How would they know that there would be seven men full of the Holy Spirit, of good reputation, full of wisdom, how would they know that there were those men in the church except they had seen the working of God's Spirit? As the ministry of the Word had occurred among the people of God, they had seen the Holy Spirit at work, maturing and building the people of God up in Christ. So they were confident that as God had appointed the preaching of the Word to mature believers and to encourage the gifts among the members of the church... That as they continued to do that, God would supply for their needs in raising up these men who would serve in this specific manner and to meet this specific need. You now, there's a word there for us. We can, we, can become, we can become complacent to the primacy of the ministry of the word in the church. Um, I have heard many well meaning people, I have probably said this myself in a well-meaning way, who criticized the church, and especially Reformed churches, for becoming preaching posts. And I understand the criticism, yet at the same time, the word of God never stops working among the people of God. And at no time do the people of God ever outgrow their need for the ministry of the word of God. And never in the life of the church does anything, not even mercy ministry to widows, takes a more central place than the ministry of the word of God. This is why the Apostle Paul can say in 2 Corinthians, when he is being attacked by these super apostles, and and he can say, we are not like so many, peddling the word. Um, I was in a church when I was younger, in which the minister, in my opinion, began peddling the word, He would read a passage, and then he would use it as a springboard for whatever topic or whatever thing he wanted to make sure the people knew he was thinking or or wanting in the church. And on one occasion, my dad met with him and confronted this minister. And I'll never forget, my dad held up a Bible, and he said to this man, he said, you have one job and only one job, and it is to faithfully minister the word of God to the people of God. And that means that as the church, we need to reclaim the centrality of the ministry of the word. You know, what fueled the Reformation under the ministry of John Calvin was nothing other than the pure, plain, and simple preaching of the word of God in the gospel. Calvin preached ten times a week at one short period in his ministry, And the reformers understood that as the word is sowed, the kingdom comes with power, converts are made, the church is built up, the the problems in the church are addressed by the ministry of the word. So much so that when the apostles come to an end of their ministry, the apostle Paul writes several letters that we now call the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. And essentially, what the Apostle Paul is saying in those letters is there is a day coming when you will not have an apostolic band to go to and to ask questions. And so I am giving you everything that you will need for continuance in gospel ministry, both now and until Christ comes again. And in those letters, the apostle says things like, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Give heed to reading, exhortation, doctrine, that your progress may be evident to all. Now, that means that when we think about ourselves in the context of a local church, the the most central thing ought to be is the word of God. Is the word of God prevailing? Is the word of God being ministered faithfully and fully? I think that the apostles understood the supremacy of the ministry of the word when they say it is not right. It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. You know, let me say this this morning. There are many Christians and they usually go to churches that have websites that say things like, um, listen, go do. I'm like, what, what about the gospel? Listen, go do. And, and, There are well-meaning Christians that will say things like, you know, you need to shut the Bible and get doing. You need to be active in mercy and compassion. You need to be doing these things. And it's very interesting. Scripture never tells us, shut the Bible and get doing. In fact, James says, whoever looks into the, the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, he memorizes it, he meditates on it, but is a doer of it, continues in it, and is a doer of it. And so the apostles are cognizant of the supreme importance of the ministry of the word. But notice verse 4, they couple to that. In fact, they lead with prayer. Notice they say, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. You know, Sinclair Ferguson often says, and he's right, if you want to know the spiritual condition of Christians, if you want to know the spiritual condition of, of a Christian, if you want to know the spiritual condition of a church, find out if they have a prayer meeting and if they're committed to it. We will give ourselves not first and foremost to the ministry of the word. We will give ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Um, It's one reason why we have a corporate prayer meeting on the last Sunday of every month. We want to be a church that prays together. Because if we're not calling on the Lord who gives the word to bless the word among the people who have been redeemed by the central message of the word, the the death and resurrection of Jesus, if we're not calling on him for his blessing, then we can have no confidence that that things are just going to happen mechanistically. Um, The apostles understand the, the primacy of what we call the means of grace. We will devote ourselves to prayer into the ministry of the word. Now, that is the first part of the corrective. But as I've already noted, they tell the congregation, you need to choose for yourself seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, and full of wisdom. Now, while those are not the same qualifications verbatim as what we find in 1 Timothy 3, they are are part and parcel of what Paul will set out as qualifications for deacons. Um, And it's important that the men who are put over this work meet those qualifications to some degree because this disputation was not just going to go away. By the way, there's a word there for us. So many of us just hope that conflict just kind of goes away. Conflict never just goes away by itself. I know we all like the phrase, time heals all wounds. It doesn't. God has appointed for the living organism of his church officers who will, by the spirit of God and the wisdom God gives them, mediate on behalf of the people of God and lead them forward in a way that conflict is resolved. Um, Some of you have no doubt went through uh, Ken Sandy's Peacemaker or some related book and very helpful, isn't it, that The two extremes are fight or flight. We either go in and fight, that's what caused this conflict between these widows, or we flee from it and hope it just resolves itself. But notice the apostle said, You pick out from among yourselves seven men, and we will point them over this duty. Now, there is this beautiful symbiotic thing happening between the apostles as the ministers of the gospel and the members of the church in the election of their officers. This is where we get our principles of Presbyterianism. We are, of all denominations, built on this principle that the people elect for themselves ministers and other officers who are going to serve, and then the elders themselves appoint them to the work. They lay hands on them. They send them out with God's blessing to the work. They come alongside them in that work. And notice that the church does something remarkable as it seeks to correct this conflict. Notice, notice that they choose for themselves seven men who all have Greek-speaking names. Now, let me say this just as an aside. I know there's a lot of debate about women serving as deacons. I just want to say this morning, as a rabbit trail, if ever, if ever women would have been appointed to a diaconate, it would have been here you have women fighting over daily distribution. And the apostles say, you choose for yourself seven men full of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, appoint them to this work. And they choose for themselves men who no doubt are Greek-speaking men. They choose men that are going to address what is at least an appearance of ethnic discrimination. They strategically say, if in fact these Greek-speaking widows are being discriminated against, if in fact the Jewish widows are being given preference over them, then it would make sense that we would appoint those who could care specifically for them. There is, there is a, a fittedness to what the apostles do. Now, notice, after naming these seven men... That Luke tells us, these they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Now notice how prayer is part of the conflict resolution. Jonathan Edwards has a sermon on the election of new elders out of Acts chapter twenty. And in that sermon, Edwards says, Satan, and I want you to listen very carefully, Satan is never more active in the life of a local church than when officers have just been elected and installed. Church history teases that out for us. Satan is almost never more active in the life of a church than after God has just raised up new officers to serve his people. And and so it's significant that the apostles first pray, Over these men, they commit them to the Lord, they ask for his blessing, they entrust them to his care, and then they lay their hands on them. And and what the apostles are essentially doing is symbolically imparting some of what Christ had given them to these men by laying their hands on them. They are essentially saying, we will share with you what we have been called to, and we will together share in this calling as God has called us and set us apart to this work. Now, again, I want to say this, that the the election and the installation of deacons, no less than elders, does not mean that the members of the church have nothing to do in either ministry or in deeds of mercy. Because at the end of the day, even the apostles were just men and we're just sheep in Christ's church. While elders are shepherds, they are also sheep. They are members of the same flock and there is only one shepherd, the Lord Jesus. And while deacons enter in on the work of service, they are just servants. That's all they are. In fact, the word diaconia and its subsequent uses here in this section um, just basically means Servant. We read this morning in our meditation verse that the Lord Jesus, think of this, God over all, the eternal son, said even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. I knew a minister who, as he watched his church spiraling out of control over conflict, he had created said to another elder, he said, these people need to know who's in charge. That is antithetical to what it means to be an officer in Jesus' church. It is absolutely antithetical. There is no place for authoritarianism, for lording over people in the church. There's absolutely no place for that. There's only place for service, care, love, protection, and guidance. And and the apostles are instituting this org- organization as the organism continues to grow and increase for the good and the health and the well- well-being of the new covenant church. Now, we've seen the conflict, we've seen the corrective. I want us to consider the conclusion or the outcome. Notice verse 7, very fascinating, the way in which Luke chooses the words he chooses here. Notice this. Verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase. Notice Luke doesn't first say, and the church and its members continued to grow. He will say that. Notice he'll say, the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. But the first thing that Luke says is, the word increased. Think about that. When, When conflict is abated, when a divine corrective is instituted... When officers are raised up to serve the people of God in the church, the word of God increases. It spreads. It grows. More preaching, more teaching, more ministry of the word. Um, I want to say this again. You will never get to a point in your Christian life where you need less of the ministry of the word or no ministry of the word. There's always a need for the word of God to increase and to grow. And our desire in installing and ordaining deacons this morning is not just that we have more people so more stuff gets done quicker. We want that. That's good. But the end goal of appointing more officers to serve and deacons specifically to care for the physical, financial, property needs, material needs of the people of God among us is that the word of God would increase and grow, that those who are called to proclaim the word and teach the word would have free course to do that. And then notice, notice the bookends. Notice verse one. In these days when the disciples were increasing in number, and then notice the second part of verse seven, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Isn't that awesome? A a very ordinary corrective to what is really a very insignificant conflict that threatened the very foundation of the new covenant church at its inception now produces this conclusion of the increase in the ministry of the word of God, the increase of the number of disciples, and then notice this, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The religious leaders in the synagogues heard the preaching of the Lord Jesus. They turned from Judaism to the covenant Lord himself. They trusted in the Lord Jesus, and they became part of the number of believers that were the product of the church appointing deacons to take care of a seemingly insignificant conflict so the apostles could give themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Now, as I approached this this morning, I thought, you know, there's not a whole lot of gospel in this passage, and I thought about how you may receive this, And I thought, you know, I I believe that probably many Christians would read a passage like this, skim over it, and think that doesn't have a whole lot of value to my life, not a lot of cash value. This is what I want to say this morning. This passage has massive, massive cash value on the life of the entire church, because a church that doesn't have elders is not a healthy church and is not going to be a healthily growing church. And a church that doesn't have qualified deacons is not going to be a healthy church or a healthily growing church. Do you see that? That when Christ gives officers to his church, when the people call on men to serve them in a representative capacity as, as ministers, ministering to the needs of the people, everyone wins. Everyone wins. Let me say this this morning. And I say this to the men we're installing. Um, If men are appointed to the office and they do not give themselves to that office, if they are absent from the stated meetings of the church, if they're not in the lives of the people on a superlative basis, the church doesn't prosper. You see, it's vital that they own this calling, that they lay hold on it, that they give themselves wholly to it, that they are content to serve in that office. And let me say this this morning. The office of a deacon is not a stepping stone nor a trial for men to ultimately become elders. It is a high and dignified yet separate office. The church has not understood that for two millennia. It would be good for us to come in a newfound way to understand the significance of the men that God calls owning this office, owning what it's supposed to do, doing it with humble, servant-like hearts, and doing it with a wholehearted commitment to the Lord and to his people. Because as that happens, conflict is resolved, needs are met, ministers of the gospel and the elders of the church are freed up to minister the word of God as they've been called to do, the word increases, the church grows, Many are brought in, and the evident blessings of God are set before the watching world and before the church itself. Is that not amazing? Something as simple as appointing these men to deal with something so insignificant as some murmuring widows in the church brings God's blessing in very large and tangible ways. Even my iPhone couldn't figure that out, sorry. Um... I want us, as we come to ordain and install these men this morning, to, to really take a, an inventory check of how we view offices in the church. How do we understand the significance of what we're doing this morning? Again, this, this may not seem like it has massive impact or application to your life personally. It, it has huge impact because as they do their job, As these deacons serve and serve and serve and pour themselves out and take up the basin and the towel and give themselves to a wholehearted service of the people of God, the ministry of the word does its work among the people. The gifts of the people are drawn out. The gifts of the people are actuated in the life of the church. And God's tangible blessings abound. I hope that you'll be encouraged this morning as we come to... Set apart these men to serve in this capacity, and I hope that you'll be praying that we at Church Creek, as we do this, will see God's tangible blessings, the word increase, the number of disciples increase, and those even in religious communities who do not know Christ coming to saving faith in the Lord Jesus. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you that you have given us this record, this account of this conflict in the life of the early church. Lord, we thank you for the incredible instruction that you have given us in it. We thank you, our God, for the corrective of the office of deacons that you, in your wisdom, have appointed elders and deacons to care for the spiritual and the physical needs of your people. We do pray this morning as we come to ordain and install new officers in this church that your tangible blessings would be evident among us. Lord, would you please honor and bless the work that we are doing? We pray that you would give resolve to the elders and pastors of this church, that we would give ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word in such a way that your people will be built up and blessed. And so our God, would you equip, would you strengthen, and would you empower these men that are being um, called to the office of deacon this morning, that would you use them among us for um, the good that you will produce through them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.